0: Good morning, Moran Park. Grandparents, friends that have come to support uh, our families that have, are having their children dedicated this morning, thank you for coming and visiting with us today. I know this may not necessarily be your normal port of call in terms of a house of worship, but we just want to welcome you this morning to Moran Park and thank you for coming this morning to support our, support our, our families and our children. Man, the, the sounds just coming off this, the... the the noises, I just, I just love it. Kids are God's sign that the future should continue, right? That the epic story of God's mission is uh, advancing forward as families come together and raise children to be image bearers who love, love God and fill the, fill the earth with His glory. So, so exciting to have uh, these children uh, on the stage with these parents. Pray for these parents. Pray for these parents. They're really cute, right? They're really gorgeous. There are a lot of work. There are a lot of work, as you, as you well know. So, Well, this morning, by my way, my name's Chris, elder here at Moran Park. <clears throat> Welcome. We continue our series. You're actually... Uh, Happy Mother's Day as well, by the way. Um, We're continuing our series this morning uh, of unfolding the epic story of Scripture that runs from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21-22. The Bible is actually one big story it has a beginning and it has an ending, and it's one unified, my argument is that it's one unified story, and that what God intends to do and begins to do in Genesis 1, he does in fact accomplish despite sin at the end of the story in Revelation 21-22. We started the series two weeks ago, we started in Genesis 1, we looked at what that epic story mission was, what, that God is on mission to do what? God is on mission to fill the earth with his glory through his faithful image bearers who love him. And we saw, of course, that in Genesis 3, just a couple chapters later, after God sets out on mission uh, to fill the world with his love and his glory through his loyal and faithful image bearers, is that we really mess it up like bad. Bad. And that, the very first parents, Adam and Eve, decide not to get on board with God's mission, but in fact to rebel, not create and go with his plan, establish the earth as his kingdom, but establish the earth as their own kingdoms, do what they want to do instead. And so they rebel, and we saw the catastrophic, the catastrophic consequences of their rebellion is that the world is flooded with sin and death. Rebellion and violence. And that at the heart of the issue we saw last week is not just that we're kind of struggle with temptation and a lot of the times we're good people and sometimes we're bad people and we make bad choices. No, we saw last week that chapter two of the story reveals that the the flood, if you remember, the flood actually reveals the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is not that we're just kind of badly behaved, and if we could pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we'd be okay. We got a second chance. We maybe would get it right the next time. No. The fundamental problem is the human heart. We inherited physical genetics from Adam and Eve, our first ancestral parents, but we also inherited spiritual genes from our parents. Spiritual genetics. A heart that's ravaged with the disease and the cancer of sin. You see, our hearts are desire factories. Created to desire and desire God. We don't want God. Created to know God. We want nothing to do with him. That's our natural bent when we're born. We're bent away from him. We don't want him. We don't want to be under and yield to his lordship or his kingship. We don't want God. How is God going to fix that? How is going to fix this mess? We look at our world and all its manifold, different manifestations of brokenness and violence and rebellion are just come from this heart issue. The issue is the problem of the heart. And how is God going to fix that? Now, we've broken up the story kind of arbitrarily into six chapters. Chapter 1 is creation, we're calling it. Chapter 2 is the fall. Do you remember what chapter 3 is? Remember from last time? Good job. Israel, that's right. Israel. And then we head into the New Testament, we get fourth chapter is Jesus. And chapter 5 is then the church. Good. And then chapter 6, the final chapter is the new creation. And we've been calling this story uh, the epic story of God's mission from creation to new creation, or just shorthand, because that's too long, creation to new creation. That scripture is one unified story that runs from creation to new creation, and that despite the fall, and despite our rebellion, and despite the problem of our human heart, God is going to accomplish his mission to fill the earth with his glory. That we might be ravished with his glory in a new heavens, new earth forever, a new creation. Plan A is still plan A. So we're kind of taking this, over the next few weeks, we'll be finishing the story, taking uh, this uh, 30,000 foot uh, bird's eye view of the storyline of scripture. So one more time, work it with me. Run through me with the story. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, New creation. Excellent. Let's jump right into uh, chapter 3. You're reading a book. You've been so excited about a book. You've been trying to get to it for weeks. It's been on your nightstand. You haven't been able to get to it. Kids, life, work. And it's got 10 chapters. You've heard it's an amazing story. But then strangely, you open the book... And you start at chapter seven, and you read chapter seven, eight, nine, and ten. Then you set the book down. Later on, you're sharing the story, uh, sharing the book with your friend, and your friend asks you, "Well, what's the story about?" I said, "Actually, I don't. I don't actually fully get it. Um, There's all these characters. I don't know where they came from. I don't know the backstory. But it ends well. It started out great. It ends great." And your friend scratches her head and says, Well, why don't you fully understand the story? I didn't read chapters one to six. (laughs) Why'd you do that? We sometimes do that with the Bible. It's not really our fault. We just kind of gravitate when we do pick up our Bibles and read it. We love Jesus and we read portions of the New Testament, and maybe sometimes we dabble in the Psalms in the Old Testament but most of the time we're reading our Bibles not understanding chapters 1 to 6. We can't understand chapters 7 through 10 if we don't understand the backstory chapters 1 to 6. So that's where we're going this morning. We're in chapter 3 of our epic story, Israel. And the story jumps right into Genesis 12. The narrative wastes no time unfolding God's next step in the story. God calls Abraham. This nobody named Abraham and Abraham is going to be, in chapter 12, God's solution to the problem of the fall in Genesis 3 to 11. Abraham and Abraham's family is God's solution to the problem of the fall and the rebellion and the evil heart in Genesis 3 to 11. Who's Abraham? And that's exactly right. You see, Abraham's a nobody. Nobody's special. In fact, if you read in Joshua 24, you find that Abraham is pretty messed up. Abraham's an idol worshiper from Mesopotamia that God calls to himself. Bleeds him out of his idolatry, calls him to the one true God and says, I've got a plan and a mission for you. We get, all, we get it all backwards that we think the, hero, the Old Testament is full of these heroes of the, of the faith and that they're awesome and we should emulate our lives after them. Newsflash: They're all broken, busted people that God uses, despite their faults, to accomplish His purposes. Let's read Genesis twelve one to three. Here's God's call to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, "Go from your country, and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." I'm getting some feedback, Max. Are we good? Does it sound funny to you? Are you all good? It sounds funny? We're getting some, I don't know if it's ringing back, beer or what we got going on. So you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and in him, him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here God promises three things to Abraham. Number one, God will bring Abraham to a land, the promised land, Israel, the land of Israel, and Abraham will become a great nation. Two, Abraham, God will make Abraham great, and he will become a blessing to others. Indeed, number three, in Abraham's family, in his descendants, quote, all the families of the earth will be blessed, unquote. The word bless here is used five times in two verses. Reversing the five curses that are in Genesis 3 to 11. All you have in Genesis 3 to 11 is curse, curse, curse because of violence, because of rebellion, because of the image bearers um, sinning and rebelling against the Lord. And in Genesis 12, all of a sudden you have this unleashing of blessing in Abraham. Lord, Abraham, you'll be blessed. I'm going to make you a blessing. You're going to be a blessing to others. Indeed, in and through your family, Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed swallowing up the curses of Genesis 3 to 11. God is on mission and cannot be stopped. Plan A is still plan A. And God's going to use this nobody named Abraham to fulfill his original purposes for creation. Well, the story continues. Abraham eventually has a son named Isaac. Isaac eventually has a son named Jacob. Jacob eventually has 12 sons uh, which become 12 tribes. Before they become 12 tribes, this family, because of famine, has to go down to Egypt to find food, right? Pharaoh takes this family eventually, enslaves them. They grow, they are fruitful and multiply and increase in the land. Pharaoh enslaves them, and they're under his slavery for 400 400 years in Egypt. Finally, the, the weight of their slavery, they just groan, and they cry out to God, And God reaches down and saves them and delivers them out of, from under Pharaoh, sets them free, brings them through the Red Sea on dry ground, and brings them to Mount Sinai, where he makes them his people. This ragtag group of tired slaves, -slaves, ex-slaves, just set free, he creates to be his special people. Remember, God uses nobodies to accomplish his purposes. And he says this to them in Exodus 19. Sounds better, by the way. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Exodus 19. We have that one. Awesome. That's 5 and 6. Let me just give you a little bit of context. Israel, it says, verse 2, "...in camps before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying..." Moses is the one who led them out of, out of Egypt saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, there we go, and keep my covenant, you shall be Israel, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's a repeat of the promise given to Abraham and the mission given to Abraham that in your family, Abraham, and through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 400 years later, that mission is repeated. Israel becomes here a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now what does it mean to be a holy nation? Holy means to be set apart for God's special purposes. God's mission. Kingdom of priests. We know what a kingdom is, right? Who is Israel to be the kingdom of? Whose kingdom? God's kingdom. It's going to be the kingdom of God. What does it mean that they're going to be a kingdom of priests? What do priests do? They mediate, right, between... God and other people. We know Israel is going to have a special priest, a high priest within Israel. One man is going to serve as a special priest for all Israel. But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that Israel is going to be a kingdom of priests. Well who's Israel going to mediate then between? Who is Israel going to mediate God to then if the whole nation is a priesthood? The nations, right? The world. Israel's vocation as a kingdom of priests is to mediate, bring God to the world. Bring God to a lost and dying world full of people who have the evil human heart who need to be saved from their sin, right? Israel's on mission. They're special people, not for themselves. Look at us, we can be special No, not for their own sake. They're they're set apart. They're called to be on God's mission to save the world. Doesn't get any more fundamental, more important than that. But they're kind of they're a ragtag group. They don't have a land. They're a bunch of ex-slaves. They don't have anything. Except what they brought with them out of Egypt. So what's God going to do to bring help this? ragtag group of slaves, ex-slaves accomplish their mission. Well, they need a place. They need a land. Right? The land that God promised them through Abraham 400 years earlier. So God brings them through the desert into the land promised centuries before to Abraham and his family. Max, do you have that slide, that PowerPoint? There is this relationship between God and God's people and God's land. We saw it first in the Garden of Eden. God dwelling with his people in a perfect place, a paradise, a garden. God dwelling with his people who are to love him, to know him, and to make him known in all the earth. And we see a microcosm of that or a little depiction of that with Israel. God dwells with his people Israel in the promised land in a land in a special place that's blessed we have this triangular relationship between God and God's people and God's land when you look at Israel in the Old Testament you are to see thinking thinking now the unified story the epic story of scripture that runs from creation to new creation that runs from Eden to the new Eden when you look at Israel in the Old Testament, you're to see a little picture, a little microcosm of what it was supposed to be like in Genesis 1 and what it will be like in all its fullness in Revelation 21:22. Israel is a picture in miniature of the new creation. God dwelling with his people, his special people, in a land that's blessed and abundant. First, God comes to dwell among his people at the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is at the center of the land of Israel. God comes to dwell there on Mount Zion and dwell and be with his people. Because the heart of the epic story is that God wants to dwell with his people, be with his people, bless his people, love his people. God comes to dwell with his people at Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Second, like Adam and Eve in the garden, and like we will in the new creation, God's people in the Old Testament Israel are called on mission to reflect God's love to the world. They are his special image bearers set apart to bring God's love, God's salvation to the nations. Third, we have the promised land that Israel is to dwell in it, that Israel is to inhabit as a, base, as a base of operations to launch their mission to the world. In Genesis 13, it's called, it's like the garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden. In Joel 2.3, Joel describes it as the garden of Eden itself. Isaiah 56 as well, and Ezekiel 36, both describe the promised land in the Old Testament, Israel's land, this land this plot of ground uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world as the Garden of the Lord, the Garden of Eden. Not that it's perfect, but that it provides a glimpse of what it was like back in the garden and where the story is going and all its glory and fulfillment at the end. So when you look at Israel in the Old Testament, you're to see glory. You're to see an amazing glimpse and picture of what it's supposed to be like when all is accomplished. Israel called on mission, set forth to glorify the Lord and bring His love to the nations that are wretched, lost in their sin and their darkness. Well, the Old Testament, of course, is quite long. It's 75% of our Bibles. But the plot line of the Old Testament is actually relatively straightforward. From Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, the, Israel's history kind of goes like this. We get started. We get, we get going. We get going pretty good, actually, under David and then King Solomon. We peak, and then we do this. <laughs> and to Malachi four. And by the end of the Old Testament, the whole mission has come grinding to a halt. Israel has rebelled for centuries. Israel can't get it right. Israel continues to go after idols and other gods and all kinds of rebellion and finally God has to say enough I have to, I have to judge you I can't, I can't be in your presence anymore and he casts them into exile and so at the end of the Old Testament the mission has come grinding to all now what? well you actually know the answer to this question but I'm going to ask it anyway if you've been here the past two weeks why do you think Israel failed why do you think Israel failed was it because they didn't try hard enough was it because why couldn't they get it together What did, what did last week show us? What was the problem again? The problem's the heart. And so even though Israel was called and set apart to be God's special people, the fundamental issue of the evil human heart was never, was never addressed. It was never fixed. We eventually, we always eventually do whatever our strongest desire is. You know we're creatures of desire, right? That's not a bad thing. Our culture has made desire a horrible thing. Desire is neutral. What what is it that you desire? But we always ultimately do whatever our strongest desire is. And the strongest desire of Israel with the broken heart, the evil heart, was not to want God and not to do what God wanted them to do how is God going to fix this, right? How is God, who has created humanity to know him, to love him, to be ravished by his glory forever, to fill the earth with his love, his, his benevolence, his goodness, his kindness, his justice, his light, his truth, who has inherited the spiritual genetics of an evil human heart from our first parents and want nothing to do with God, how is God going to fix this? How is God going to actually like, make this all good in the end? Well, he promises heart surgery. Nothing less than a spiritual heart transplant is going to fix this mess. And that's exactly what we see here three times in the Old Testament. God promises that in the days of Messiah... God is going to accomplish spiritual heart surgery. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Look at the result. So that, with the result that, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you might live. Heart surgery. Or Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. and they shall be my people. See that? He's going to write his law on the heart. What does that mean? It means that what is in here is God's word. What is in here is God's, God's ways, desires for God, the ability to know God, to love God, to obey God, to trust God. Ezekiel 36 is the third text that promises this unbelievable heart surgery that God himself will have to accomplish by his spirit. Ezekiel 3626 to 28. I will give you, O Israel, a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Spiritual heart surgery. God's going to come, and God's going to fix the problem of the evil human heart. He's going to create for himself a faithful people, a people who love him, a people who know him, a people who want to do his will, a people who will not only be able to accomplish the mission, But actually, accomplish it. Mm. It's not us trying harder. We're broken. Let's just, can we just confess? We need spiritual heart surgery. And God promises in the days of the new covenant that He will make that He will finally create a people for Himself that become fully and truly human. Become all that we were meant to be. Well, in conclusion, a few applications. First, Epic Story Chapter 3 reveals something about God, it reveals that God is a missionary God, God is on mission relentlessly, tirelessly pursuing his people, pursuing his original purpose for creation. And plan A is still plan A. Despite the rebellion, despite our evil hearts, God is going to overcome our rebellion, fix it, and accomplish his purposes in the end. Why? Why is God a missionary God? And this is good news, by the way. Because he loves us. Among other reasons I could give, God loves you. And he can't stand the thought of not being a, being separated from you. And having you us destroy ourselves. He wants us to be there on that day. He wants you to live with him forever. In that new, renewed, healed world. He wants you to be there. He's a missionary God. He's not going to stop until either you finally say, I want nothing to do with you, ever. Leave me alone. Or you say, I want you. I give my heart to you. You can have me. I'm busted. I'm broken. I'm messed up. I suck. But you can have me. And he'll say, okay. I'll take that. Second, Epic Story Act 3 is a story of Abraham's family. Who's Abraham? Is he a hero of the faith? No, he's a nobody. He was an idol worshiper in Mesopotamia. He had nothing. He had no claim on God. Like, hey, God, did you see Abraham over there? He's a really cool. He'd be good for your mission. Nope. Nope. Abraham's a nobody. God called him, and he chose to trust God, and God used him to accomplish unbelievable purposes in history. Right? Played an unbelievable role in the epic story. So there's good news there, because God chooses nobodies to accomplish His purposes. Are you rich? No? Famous? Are you messed up? Are you really messed up? Perfect. You're hired. God wants you. God is calling your name and summoning you to become part of his epic story rescue mission. Are you willing to be a part? Finally, in the story, God does promise in the Old Testament spiritual heart surgery. He's going to fix his people. But unfortunately, humanity has been rebelling and transgressing and committing acts of violence for centuries. And while God is a loving Father, he is also a just judge, and he must Condemn sin. God can't wink at that. Hey, you murdered somebody? It's alright. You destroyed that family over there with your lust and your adultery? It's okay. No problem. He cannot, he cannot sweep that under the rug. He must deal with that. So the question becomes how is God in the days of the new covenant? In the days of Messiah, how is he going to handle and deal with that sin? How is he going to be both just and find a way to forgive his people? You perhaps see the problem. And we will pick up here in the story when we come back next week and introduce the Messiah into the epic story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise of spiritual heart surgery. Lord, I have no idea whether any of these people will be back next week. And so, Lord, I just pray for them now. That if they're not here to hear about Jesus in chapter 4 of the your epic story that you're writing. Lord, I just pray for them now. pray that you'll give them ears to hear. I pray that you'll move and do spiritual heart surgery in this place today. That if there is somebody here today that does not know you, that you will be at work. That you will remove the heart of stone, replace it with the heart of flesh. That you will give the gift of the Spirit and the gift of your love and the messiah jesus christ thank you for your epic story thank you that you're a missionary god and that you can't bear the thought of not of being without us in eternity forever thank you for your love in jesus name amen